Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 214. We are in the week of Pashas Bahaleischa, and as is the custom, we will begin with something living with the times, a relevant message, an applied Hasidic message to our lives. I want to uh, uh, announce that this class is dedicated by Faivalei Ben Sura Risha and Fega Baslea Miral. Merrill, Nancy, and Philip Namor. Thank you very much. And may the words shared in this program and the way it touches and affects and impacts people be a merit to you and to your family and to your extended family and your students and all those that you come in contact with. Uh, this is a good opportunity to state that this program, My Life, so this applied, is made possible by your generous sponsorships and dedications and contributions. So please contribute generously at MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. And here's also the place to announce that any question you'd like to ask, any comment, anything you'd like me to address, please submit it in a completely anonymous forum at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. As well as in that same section, you can find a rich archives of all previous My Life episodes, now 213 episodes, plus the essays that have been written over the last four years of the essay contest, the My Life Citizen Applied Essay Contest, and other materials that surely can be useful to you and to those that you care about and feel free to share. The whole purpose of this is sharing and communicating with each other and above all, taking the teachings of Teda, the universal and the divine teachings of Teda, the timeless teachings, and making them timely making them timely and relevant to our personal, psychological, emotional lives. That's the entire purpose of this, which is the Teda Melash and Heira, from Heira Bachaim, the Teda is a directive in life, and especially Primius Teda, which is Chesidus, bringing it down to addressing the soul, matters of the soul, matters of the psyche, all the matters that we struggle with, all the issues we deal with. And with that, let us go to Baha'u So Baha'u Sanedis is the third chapter in the book of Numbers, in the fourth book. In the book of Bamidbar, Baleish Chesanedis is referring to after we read last week's chapter, Nase, about the offerings brought as a dedication to the temple by all the tribes represented by their leaders. We now move to the tribe of Levi, headed by, of course, the Kayan Godel, the Arna Kayan himself, Shevet Levi, which from Shevet Levi were both the Levites and the Kahanim. And the Kahanim, with the Kayan Godel being the high priest of uh, um, Arna Kayan, and the, and the mitzvah being told to him, You shall raise the flames. And the famous question, as Rashi points out, why the word Baha'u Should have said, We say, you kindle flames, you ignite flames, you light flames. Baha'u means raising, elevating. How is that applicable here to raise, elevate flames? Yes, flames do rise. But we ignite flames, we kindle flames. Hadlokas anedas, as we say in the Baruch, Hadlokas anedas, Shabbos, Kedish, Yontif. And Rashi answers, because the mitzvah was not just to light the flames, but to make sure that they rise. What does that mean? When you light a flame, you can, you can move on to the next flame, and the flame can burn out. It takes a split second for the flame to catch, and then burn on its own, and rise on its own. The mitzvah was for the king to wait. The Torah changes the word in order to insist that the king waits until that flame rises. 
on its own and then light the next flame. But then Hagufakasha, the question on that itself, and this is one of the favorite and most popular themes that the Rebbe would address, as we'll see in a moment why. Hagufakasha, why is it so important that the Kohen God let the flames rise on their own? And what's the worst scenario? He lights the flame, moves to the next flame, of the seven, seven flames on the, the seven candles on the Mineta, the seven branches on the Mineta, and it burns out, come back and light it again. Why is it that important that a Torah must to change its word? And the answer the Rebbe gives is a very fundamental one that really broadens the whole theme, which also answers the bigger question is why do we need to know this? Why are we told this? It's true as a mitzvah in the Beis HaMikdash, as a mitzvah during the time of the Mishkan, and during, of course, the, when the Torah tells us to do it. But today we don't have a Menet. And we don't have a Beis Amigos. Why is it relevant? To the point that we also need to know the Bahalescha. And that is the broader question. The answer is, because lighting flames is the essence of life. Education, inspiration, communication. Every form of interaction of one person to another, the Torah tells us, has to be one of illuminating flames. Neiris lahoyir. We are candles to light others. Like the Gemara says regarding the Meneda itself, the Meneda says, why did, why did the Meneda, why did you need to light a Meneda inside the Beis Does God need light? You light a Meneda, you light a Meneda, just like today we light electricity in order to brighten a dark room. Does the Abishta need light? So it says, no, it's not for the Abishta, it's for the world. That's why the windows in the Beis Amidash were Shkufim Atumim, which means they were narrow on the inside, wide on the outside. Why? It's usually the opposite. You bring the light in from outside, so you bring it out, so it should be narrow on the outside and wide on the inside. No, here it was wide on the inside, wide on the, wide on the outside, and narrow on the inside. Which would mean, if you looked at it, from coming, if the light was coming from outside in, it was coming in a very narrow way instead of a wide way. Windows are either wide on the outside and wide on the inside, or wide on the, on the, on the, on the, on the, on the inside and narrow on the outside. To, to expand the light. Because... The Beis doesn't need light. The Beis gives light. And that's the idea of a Meneda, to illuminate others. In life, we can be self-absorbed, self-interest, and we take, 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 absorbing others, taking from others. Or we can be givers and influencers and inspirers. So we're meant to be walking Menedas. And that's the southern foundation of all of education. You're to educate another, to illuminate another, to teach another, whether it's parents to children or adults or to educators to students or friends to friends or in every situation in Shama came down below to this world to illuminate the world a dark hostile world to illuminate it to educate it to inspire it but in inspiration itself there can be two methods two ways you can educate someone but you don't cause them to rise on their own you teach them information you teach them data teach them knowledge there's another way you teach them methodology in a way, not only do you teach them the answers to questions, you teach them how to answer questions. So, the Mishnah says in Pirkei is right in the beginning, which we study in the weeks between Pesach and Shavuos, and then some Yesh Neigen, as the Alter Rebbe writes in Siddur, to continue the study also after Shavuos till Rosh Hashanah, throughout the summer. So the first Mishnah, the same question is asked, why Himidu? To establish many students? You teach many students. Educate, teach. 
Because the goal is to make them stand on their own feet, to rise on their own, that they, even when they're not in the presence of the teacher, they have the method, the tools to answer questions. You don't just give them the fish, you teach them how to fish, as the expression goes. Rooted, originated from this idea. So this isn't just a small detail. It's a fundamental principle in how education is a lasting and sustainable one because you don't just teach. You teach how to think, how to resolve issues, a methodology, how to live life. Not just giving people tools, not just you're giving people solutions, you're giving them tools how to solve even situations when the teacher is not available or not around. So Baalesko, without one shift, changes the whole course of how we teach and how we educate. And look at the Rebbe's Nesiyas' leadership was based on that. Aveda Bekeye In general, all of life is based on Aveda Bekeye Yes, we get strength from above, and we need the strength, and we pray for it, and we get additional strength, but we also need the initiative from below, our effort. So all of Teir, you have that. Aveda Vavadatem Hashem you need to serve and as Alter Rebbe explains in Perek Tezvav in fifth chapter 15 in Tanya, that Aveda means some effort on your own, not patterns and not routines. <clears throat> in Chesidus specifically, Aveda Bekei becomes a whole sugya, a whole entire theme. And by the Rebbe, specific, specifically, Prati Prati, as you see straight from the first Fabrengen, for formal Fabrengen, Yushva Tavshinyiralov, where he said after the Maimed, don't deceive yourself into thinking that I'm going to do the work for you. Everyone has their work. I don't decline from helping, but everyone has there to do their effort. And you see the Rebbe was consistent throughout the leadership, the Rebbe's, till this day, consistent. You need to do your part. Your that you're made it, your measure, your effort, your your initiative. And even the famous Sikh Rebbe said, What? Two dollars was irkent. Two dollars was it. Do everything you can do. So Baaleischa captures and reflects the central theme of what the dignity of the human being. And especially according to Chsidis, that you have the power to be a creator, that you have the power to be a mashpia, that you have the power to emulate God, not just to be a receiver but a creator. And that is, of course, a central theme that the Rebbe spoke about also, the Shnas Hashivim, when the Rebbe turned 70, Tav Shalom Beis, the Rebbe turned 70 years old, it's a major theme in the letter for Pesach that year, and the Sichas of Yiralf Nissen, <coughs> as we've discussed a number of times. Excuse me. So, Baalezcha carries the message in all areas of life, for whatever we're struggling with, whatever we're dealing with, all the topics that I addressed, initiated by you. And your questions all come down to one big key thing. You have the power to initiate. Never see yourself as a victim. Never see yourself as a recipient. Never see yourself as an observer, as a victim of circumstances, as a product of circumstances. You create circumstances. That's the power of a soul. And when we lose that sight of that, that's when many problems that we have become much bigger problems. Because one thing to have a challenge, it's another to feel that you don't know how to deal with that challenge. And that's what Baal teaches us, that we're given the power, not just the time of the Beis Aminus, not just the time of Adon, the power today. Each of us had the power from Adon HaKayin, Tehidiz Nitzchi, and we have the Adon within each one of us. That gives us the power to not just ignite, and not just illuminate, and not just kindle, but also to raise flames and stand on its own, starting from ourselves, as well as influencing others in that same way. 
So it's a central message that you'll see is really an undercurrent of everything we speak about. The empowerment of the individual, that you could resolve an issue. That doesn't mean there aren't issues, but that you have the power to do something about it. And obviously, once the, the, the power to light the flame also comes from above, but you have the power that the flame should rise on its own. We should be Nedis Lahoyer in that way and, and influence others and our children and our students in the same fashion that they should stand on their own feet, which is really means that it's sustainable and it can address any issue that comes up in the future because of the empowerment involved. <clears throat> With that, let's move to the next. Today is also the 13th of Sivan. 13th of Sivan is right after the finish of the Jimei Tashlumin of, of Shavuos. And it also is, for Chassidim, it's also the anniversary of the wedding of the Rebbe's parents. Hagon, Hagmakubal, Arav Hagon, Hagmakubal, Arav Levi Yitzchak, and the Rebbe Tzinchana. They get married today, 118 years ago, in the year 1900, the year Tofresh Samach. The Rebbe would be their firstborn child, that would be born a year, almost two years later, Pesach, Yudalaf Nissen, Tofresh Samach Beis, they got married, Yud Gimel Sivan, Tofre Samach. I thought appropriate since today, Sunday, today is Yud Gimel Sivan, to mention that. And of course, we know the honor that the Rebbe gave to his parents, especially the fact that in many years, the later years, once he left Russia, he would not see them until his mother he would see after Tof Shin Zayin. But the honor that he gave them, and the honor that he gave anyone they gave them honor. So as Chassidim of the Rebbe, as students of the Rebbe, as children of the Rebbe, obviously a day that's an anniversary of the Rebbe's parents is significant to us because it's the day that allowed the Rebbe to come to this world. So the parents' anniversary of their wedding is, a, our, is our celebration, celebration that would lead to their first child and the, 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 our Rebbe, who in Tafri Samach Beis was born and then would go on to go through his journey till in Tafri Shin Yud become the Rebbe, the Deir Hashvi, the seventh generation. So I thought it proper to mention. In context of lessons from this, there are many, many lessons, both that we learned from the Rabbi Levi Yitzchok's Mesiris Nefesh, as well as Rabbi Tzachan's Mesiris Nefesh, lessons that we've discussed in this program that come from the Rebbe Sichis, of how they literally gave their lives to do everything possible to keep Yiddishkeit going in their area, and how the Rebbe Tzachan did her part through her Mesiris Nefesh and bringing out these Ksavim and writings of her husband, as well as preparing the ink and the many different messages, which is not really for now because really lesson is related to Vov of, but in context of the anniversary, it has that significance. And of course, the fact that the, the chinuch of children, starting from the Rebbe, begins with the parents. The, the start of the education begins with the parents, and that's where you are shaped. And even though a tzaddik is born a tzaddik and a Rebbe is born a Rebbe, but still they have to go through the process of Aveda Bekei of Baaleischa, Everyone goes through that process, and it's due to a lot of credit to what their parents do for them. And we know the stories of the Rebbe Tzachana and the, how, how she brought up and educated the Rebbe and trained the Rebbe, as well as, of course, his father, Levi Yitzchak. The Rebbe, in the years after Tovshin Lamed, Lamed Aleph, began to explain every Shabbos something from his father, even before that, Tovshin Chavtes, Nagaras Hachuva, but then he started the Biurim of his father, Anagaras Hachuva, and Tanya, and then on, on Zehar. And uh, we were zeichet to that for many years, showing again that tribute that the Rebbe gave. Of course, after the Rebbe Tzachana passed away, her the Rebbe began then, in her honor, teaching a Rashi every week. 
I said, I speculated that one of the reasons may be because the Rebbe, the quintessential the child, it most likely began, the Rebbe's mother, the Rebbe always says, the, child, the, young educa- the young child's education begins with the mother, that it was a way, either the mo- his mother actually taught him the first Rashi's, or he attributed to her, and that's a way of honoring her, the Chinuch that he received from her through teaching Rashi's with the depth. And we always would say that Rebbe's Benchom Mika was the Rebbe himself. He was the perfect Benchom Mika when he was five years old. But gave us the power that each one of us have the ability to also be a Ben Chomish Lamik, and then there was a Ben Chomish Lamik and Mamulach, a particularly sharp one that was able to pick up even more nuances, as discussed in many of the Rebbe's talks on Rashi. So here we are in this 118th anniversary, and we honor that and remember that, and these things live on, even though they were past events, because they shaped history and shaped our lives and shaped our generation. And as I always say, we would not be here teaching Siddhis and learning Siddhis and implying it and all the shlichus and that we fulfill the Rebbe's mission were not for a day of this day, this anniversary. Okay. I don't recall that Rebbe ever referred to the anniversary, to the day Yud Gimel, um, Sivan, but if he did, I would definitely appreciate if anybody has more information. I didn't really research it, um, so please pass that on to me and I will share it, please God, with the audience. Let us now go to a few follow-ups and a few questions, new questions. So firstly, regarding follow-ups, uh, well, let me start saying with cross-referencing, first of all. Chizis applied to Baal I want to also cross-reference you to episode 69, 119, and 165, where I spoke about that in previous years, similar themes and related themes. As far as follow-up, I want to begin with follow-up because there was a lot, a lot of comments on the, on the issue on the issue that I discussed in the pre the last episode was right before Shavuos. Uh, remember, last Sunday was Shavuos, so the Sunday before that was before Shavuos. So we focused a special a special focus in that program on my teenage friends are drowning. What can we do? In episode two hundred and thirteen, you could go back there easily. As I said earlier, the archives are easily accessible at meaningfullife.com/slash/mylife. And when you go there, you'll see all the previous episodes. They are time-stamped in the YouTube version of it. If you click on the video, you see YouTube, go to YouTube, and in the description, each subject is time-stamped, meaning you can go straight to the subject you're looking for, click on that, and it takes you straight to that minute where that topic is addressed. So a lot of, lot of comments came in, very positive ones, some very, very gratifying, encouraging, talking about a sensitive topic like this, which was, of course, built on a article based based on an article or a re, I read the article by a teenager that was was published on one of the sites on COL and uh, so I want to read a few of the follow-ups even though I usually do follow-up after the new questions but due to the importance of the topic I decided to begin with the follow-ups um, after the timely events and then we'll go to some new questions and I want to again remind you please submit your questions do not hesitate do not be uh, do not in any way be discouraged if you didn't get it responded to yet because I am catching up. I, I was looking through all the questions. It's a lot, a lot of questions. I have uh, at least 100, 150 that have not been addressed yet, maybe even more. And I'm going through them, trying to also organize them. Like in a few weeks when we deal with Gimel Tamas, I'm going to talk about the questions that were specifically related to that. Try to keep it in a timely way, organize them. So your questions will be addressed Sometimes it'll be immediate, sometimes it'll be, take a few weeks, sometimes a little, few, a little more weeks, but if, especially if it's a timely thing, obviously I'll address it in a more timely fashion. 
So keep them coming. So here's the follow-up to this discussion, the drowning teenagers. And I just chose to select a few. I, didn't, I could not read them all because, number one, there were hundreds online, and even that came to us were tens and tens, maybe over 50, 60, maybe even more. So you can look at many of them online, but I will read a few select few that I think is worthwhile hearing and also responding to. Rabbi Jacobson, I grew up in Crown Heights in the 80s and 90s. When we were in Masifta, we asked our principal to allow us time during recess and evenings to play sports. He was very accommodating, arranging for us to be able to use the Holotator gym, swimming pool, and more. He's a fabulous leader and educator, and I can't thank him enough. Having said that, I can also tell you that the sports didn't prevent the Bochum in our class from being involved in inappropriate matters, be it hanging out with girls, watching videos, or looking at adult materials. And this predates the internet. I'm not talking about non-Hasidic dropouts. I'm talking about young men who sat and actually learned in yeshiva, who wore black hats and jackets while walking in the street, who went on Mifzayim every Friday, Hanukkah, Hufabrengd, and so on, etc. In essence, all the good we were involved in didn't prevent the Sitra Acher from also being there. Sports and a healthy lifestyle are vital to being healthy. But I think an additional component is for Mashpia and out of in and out of yeshiva, to get training in how to deal with young men in puberty and beyond. And for yeshivas to start addressing these issues with young men head on, not to punish them, but to teach them the premius of why movies, schmutz, and so on, are destructive to them and will damage them, and conversely, the benefits they gain by not indulging in those self-destructive behaviors. They need to be taught mechanisms of what to do when, the, when they have different urges come on that are strong, and taught how to do things and channel them in a holy way, and the benefits of not wasting it, and so on and so forth. I hope this was not too explicit, Psudis Tevis. So let me respond to this, and then I'll read the next one. So firstly, those that have not heard this topic before, I strongly suggest it's well worth listening to and reviewing, because especially if you're dealing with these issues or you have family members or friends that are dealing with it, to go back to episode 213, and have the patience to listen to the question that was asked, the article I read, and the comments, that some of the comments I read, as well as my comments on the topic. This, of course, is a follow-up. So I'm not, I'm not going to go over everything that was reviewed back then. Thank God it's all recorded. I'm just going to take it further, and this person is responding to some of the things that I said. I want to just emphasize in response to this, I never said, and no one can ever say, that sports or other exciting activities are just going to eliminate the Yitzhahara and we're not going to have any challenges. That's not the case, not now, not, not 10 years ago, not 30 years ago, not 100 years ago, not 1,000 years ago. From the time Adam Achava ate, from Eitz Adas, the Sianus and the Yitzhahara became active <coughs> and, affects, and, and affects us all the time. And you read Tanya, 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 the whole Tanya is based on this war and battle that we have to struggle with. It's not an internet issue. It's not a modern issue. What we have to say is, of course, to address it needs to be attacked from many different angles. The suggestion that one thing is going to solve it all, one thing is a panacea, is ridiculous. It's an illusion. It's fantasy. Like anything has to be looked at wisely and attack it from all angles. When I say attack, I include preempting, filling a person's life with exciting things. The more we have filled with air with and gedusha, light and holiness, the less room there is for other things. Is there no room? We know there's a battle. Every day is a battle. Even if you fill your life today completely with holiness and, and light and you're influencing others and things are going excellent, there's always tomorrow. 
And there's always going to be a, a lull, a, a moment that you're down, a moment where you're weaker. The Yitzhah is a very wise, waiting, always waiting. It'll find some way in. We need to know that. But like anything, like we spoke about the helmet. A helmet does not guarantee, a, a, a military helmet, that a person cannot be, God forbid, hurt. But it maximizes, the protection maximizes the, the, the immunity and minimizes the risk. That's all it is. But that's critical. In a healthy lifestyle, you have no guarantees for anything. But the healthier you are, the more you fill up a young person's life with positivity and passionate activity around holy good things, the less chances those others will hold on. Rest assured, a person does not have excitement and no passion and no release and is bored. What you have is the, 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 the breeding ground for every infection, a vacuum. For every bacteria, and I mean this also on a spiritual sense, well, I mean primarily on a spiritual and psychological sense. An empty grub, an empty pit. Without water, what happens? When it's void, will crawl in. An empty mind is going to, cannot, cannot be sustained. So the more you can fill it, that, that's the key thing. Additionally, what you're suggesting, I think I said it, but I'm going to say it more, in more explicit terms now. Absolutely. Absolutely the responsibility of a mechanach, of a mashpia, of a parent. Each in their way, in each of the right age. Children certain ages are not parents are not the right ones to speak about certain things. This sensitivity of caring, of sitting down with a young man, and for that matter a young woman, a woman to a woman, a man to a man, and having come have, creating trust. And I'm not saying you sit them down Usually does not work. Every time they tried it on me as a teenager, it was the worst possible thing. So sit down, I want to talk to you. I would not talk in that, that, that language. I would start creating a friendship. You're mashpia, that's your role. You should be aware of every student in your classroom, in your zal, in your base medish. Same thing for girls in their school. And talk to them. Doesn't, and not, not wait for a crisis, and not wait when you see someone is particularly depressed. Obviously, then you have to, there's a red alert, and then you have to definitely pay more attention. But get around during the semester, throughout the year, or throughout the year, right in the beginning, the first week or two, you should speak to every one of the students that come into your class. You speak to them not just what we're going to learn. You speak neutrally. I would not focus on anything very aggressively. Establish a rapport. Establish a conversation. Make them feel and not just make them feel, sincerely make them feel that they can talk to you. Without that, you think something will happen and they'll be able to start talking to you? No, it doesn't work that way. People who trust people can then talk to them. If there's no trust in the first place, they're not going to come talk to you. And even if you come talk to them, oh, suddenly you're here. They won't trust it. They'll think you have an agenda. So establish a rapport in a healthy way. And then, yes, through the semester and through the time, find, find opportunities, and it should be an ongoing thing for Mashpia to speak eye to eye, one-on-one. I wouldn't do this necessarily in any group. I wouldn't do it at a Fabrengen because there people are more inhibited perhaps and, 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 and some people's privacy they don't want to expose. But one-on-one, people are a little more receptive and they may say something. And it has to be care. They have to know how much you care. And when you care and you speak about matters, even about sensitive matters, even sexuality, and other things. But it's done not as an agenda decision. I'm going to talk to you now about the birds and the bees. Or let's sit down and talk. But in the, in the, con- in the context of an ongoing conversation about life. Your bochen yeshiva. 
And I, as I said, the same language can be used for a girl in a girl's school by women teachers or mashpiyim. Let's talk about life. What does Teda want of us? What does God want of us? Why so many people feel that Teda and God are so distant from us? What's the role of a Rebbe? These questions, and let the person ask. And don't be afraid to have they ask a tough question or an irreverent question. Don't silence them. Respect them. And you speak. And guaranteed, with that type of tone, with that type of approach, person not, will always open up. Some will, some won't. But there's fertile ground to talk. And then you could bring up a subject and say, you know what? Here's a subject. I'm just thinking about it. What do you think? And it would be refreshing because the topic of sexuality is so taboo that it only makes it even more ugly and more guilt-ridden and all, guilt-ridden and all the other negative things that people think about it. This is absolute responsibility. This is the pekuach nefesh today. This isn't just an, a, a neutral thing. I think many mashpim are afraid to go there. They either don't know how to speak. They think it may go in a way that's not sneezdik. Obviously, it has to be extremely idle and extremely sneezdik, extremely modest. And maybe you need training. Maybe we have to train our teachers how to speak this way. But not focused only on that. It's focused on life. Part of life is also the areas of the sensual areas of life, the sexual areas of life, the intimate areas. That's part of it. But it's part of life in general, the life's purpose and what we're doing with our energy and we're doing with our passions and so on. So I'm absolutely, if I, I said it, but I maybe didn't elaborate as much as I should have, so now I did. And you'd be surprised at the results. Now, so now if you say, I don't know how to do this, well, I'll tell you this. If you're a mashpia, you have to learn how to do this. This is not a matter of, oh, some are good and some are not. Maybe you shouldn't be in this business if you are not interested in learning how to do this. This is what a mashpia is. And not just about these topics, in general about the welfare of your student. There's a magid shir, you could say, I'm only teaching them. Even a magid shir should also be teaching in ways, applying the ideas, making them relevant, making them personal, making them exciting. But especially someone by the category of a mashpia, that's their whole job is to think of the welfare of the students. But above all, you may think you're not so good at it. Maybe you just need a little training. Maybe you need to speak to someone. Maybe you just need someone to give you a little coaching how to do this. That's really what your job is. And you're talking about nefoshes here. We're talking about neshamis, a soul. Matter of life and death, beruchnis. Let's go to the next question on this, on this topic. Fantasy world, this fellow writes. Last week, in response to a question about a child not finding fulfillment in yeshiva, you suggested that parents also introduce hobbies into their, children, into their children's lives, thereby creating a multidimensional life and this excitement would improve the child's outlook to yeshiva and religion. And yes, I'll add, hobbies, not just hobbies, hobbies in general are good, but hobbies especially that can channel in a direct thing connected to Yiddishkeit and Teirah, Mitzvahs, Nafotzah, Samirah, and The fellow continues writing, Rabbi Jacobson, your suggestion is so logical and correct, but only on one issue with it. You're living in la-la land, in a fantasy world. No yeshiva would allow a Talmud to bring their hobbies along. Maybe while living at home till 8th grade. But once trying to enter Mesifta? Forget it. You suggest to have the child to learn to play a musical instrument. No yeshiva allows them in. Yes, they would allow them to play a few times a year for yeshiva program. But not to continue lessons or to take time for daily practice. Your second suggestion was video editing. Really? They don't allow a computer within a mile of yeshiva. Rabbi Jacobson, you perform a great service. But way too often your responses are coming from a perfect world setting. It's nice to talk how things should be, but that's not how they are. So your advice was not only not productive, but really hurtful. 
That, that mother is struggling to keep her child in the system that she and you know is broken. And yet all you can tell her is wish the system wasn't broken. Dot, dot, dot. Okay, I appreciate your uh, realism. And I, uh, with all respect, uh, I'm not so naive as you think I may be. Actually, I'm honored to feel that you think I'm completely beyond recognizing the flaws. Uh, I will uh, reassure you that I'm not. But you know something? I learned one thing from the Rebbe. And I learned one thing from Chassidus. And from the Rebbe, from Chassidus, from, through the Rebbe, from Chassidus, and from all the Rabbeim. This approach that we're living in La La Land and nothing can change because no one's going to change is the approach of cynics, pessimists, and people who don't create change. We cannot give up just because some people feel the system is broken. I have no problem criticizing the system and have done so to the chagrin of many. I have no problem discussing establishment issues, bureaucracy, corruption, and so on and so forth. I've discussed it. So I'm not insulted at all by your response. I'm very glad actually that you wrote it because I think it's important to state what you stated and I'm responding in kind. And I'm not dismissing what you're saying, but the approach has to be not to say, oh, okay, all this doesn't work. Now what? Do you have an alternative? You haven't suggested an alternative. You're saying I should be sensitive to this woman and all I'm there to offer, what are you offering? Can you write to me a suggestion? Or all you can say is the suggestions I'm saying don't work. And I'm not trying to be personal here. I'm not, this is not tit for tat. My point is we have to think for, of solutions. And I stand by what I'm saying. The system doesn't, doesn't relate to this stuff. So we push it and we address it and we drive the point home. And explain it. You have ashpa and one mashpia. Speak to that mashpia, to a principle. Yes, I understand there's a status quo, and I understand the status quo doesn't like to change. Inertia has its own power, but that's what we're here for. I wouldn't be doing this program if I had this attitude where you know it is what it is, and you can't do anything about it. That's not what we were trained to do. We were trained to do whatever we can. I'm making some suggestions. I am not suggesting these suggestions are divine or Ten Commandments. I do think that they're practical, and I do think they can be done. And I think from the thousands of people listening to this program, some may be able to implement it easily, some may be a little harder, some may be very difficult. I'm not suggesting it's all easy. Depends who you are and where you are. And I know the school system quite well. I went through it. Don't forget that. I'm not going to go through all the, my own experiences. So this is not just some theoretical ideas. We Yes, we can teach. We can. The Rebbe spoke about children taking, not just young, young children, Every even older Bachrim and older also taking off time, different ways that you can use the time toward directing it toward Kedusha, even in Yoni Rishus, the times of Miftayim or other approaches, to use our talents, to use our skills. There's certain things, yes, a school cannot allow in the internet necessarily or a computer, but that doesn't mean that a school will, will, cannot condone, will not condone. A student using those skills, let's say, who's good with programming or design, and using it to write a program that helps bring my morich siddis or teres achsidis to the world. Or you see a bachur who can write, not encouraging him to write a pilpul that can explain an idea of both for him and for others. It's ridiculous. So there are lines, yes, there are certain ways it has to be done. We have to put our heads together and figure out how to do it. That's my response and approach. So we're not living in la-la land, we're living in very deep reality, but there are solutions we were not given a challenge we cannot deal with that's a fact that's what we were told absolute 100% anyone that questions that is questioning the whole yisod of everything that was the chet of maraglin you're hearing the sounds of New York in the background in case you're wondering 
Um, the, that was the Chet HaMaraglim. What did they say? We can't. We can't do it. It's a land that consumes its inhabitants. We'll talk about this next week. What was their sin? Their sin was they did not, no one ever asked you whether we can or we can't. You're only asked how to do it, how to enter the promised land, not whether. We don't control the weather, whether we were told what to do. And Shama comes down here and is given the keiches, and Shama cannot come and say, I can't do it. So we can absolutely do it, and I am trying to throw in some ideas. Adarabah, let's get more ideas and more ideas, address it. And most importantly, make sure our teenagers and our students and our boys and girls understand that we care, and we're doing everything possible to address this, and preempting it, and preempting it. And there's no problem, I can see no problem, I've seen this time and again, parents at home control what goes on at home. And children are at home, not just in school. If there's coordination between the two, how can any good, normal, healthy mashpia not encourage a student who's using their skills and whatever, whether it's a hobby, whether it's sports, another way to use it toward Gdusha? Come on. Now, if there's some people who are not capable of understanding how, they may be uh, of the reservation and not shy to doing what the chinuch is necessary. I remember when the Rebbe spoke to Sikh, Shabbos Pasha Shmini Tovshin Mem, Shabbos after Pesach, Tzivis Hashem was established. The lessons from learning, the lessons in Avedis Hashem from Kadu Regal, which is soccer. A sikha that became a sikha, we wanted the Rebbe to be Magiyat, we tried, the Rebbe wasn't Magiyat. But the sikha is there for everyone to see. The Rebbe knew, the same Rebbe that's speaking as Asirashi sikha, Azeir sikha, Maimir, and so on. Because there's lessons to be learned. Now this doesn't mean that a person should be playing soccer all day. But it means that everything is directed toward Dusha Bechold and this needs to be part of the process. And this will integrate Teda and Chassidus and make it exciting for young people so they don't have to turn to other things. Now, do we have to hit rock bottom and see crisis and wait till students really are hitting, coming to situations that are so intolerable to do something about it? Why do we have to wait? Why can't we preempt now? And why can't we address the issues as they come up? That's the point here. Number three, teaching music to Chabad teens is mostly an impractical solution, this person writes. Rabbi Jacobson, as a music teacher of many decades, I can tell you that the Chabad system makes learning an instrument close to impossible. Of course, most people can learn to strum on a guitar. But as someone who has taught music in Crown Heights, as well as in university and institutions such as Juilliard, I can tell you that while a noble idea is largely impractical, here are the reasons. One, most families are blessed with many kids. Parents are overwhelmed with their numerous responsibilities, and very few have the wherewithal to practice with their children. Two, once kids get into middle school, they barely have time for themselves to breathe, let alone to practice. Playing an instrument takes dedicated practice, and they simply lack the time. Of course there are exceptions, but unless schools make dedicated time for musical practice or allow kids to miss certain classes to practice, I have found that almost all kids drop it and never maximize their musical potential. I have even had the Sifta Bachim tell me that their yeshiva discourage their musical involvement. Conversely, my non-Jewish or non-religious students have gone on to perform in Carnegie Hall and other such venues with blessings. Okay. I must have told this story, but I will say it again. This is similar to the previous writer, and I understand the challenges, and I understand even the resistance, because the schools want to keep a certain standard and a certain structure, but the famous story with Eli Lipsker, of Shalom, the musician, who um, was studying in 770, he came from Israel. So he wasn't a kid. We're not talking about a teenager. We're talking about Iradia Bocher. I mean, late teens, I assume. Came from Israel in the early 60s. And he was sneaking away 
and taking music lessons. The yeshiva found out about it. Rabbi David Raskin called, called and they were going to, they, they found out what's going on. They waited a meeting and they were going to throw them back, send them back to Israel, throw them out of yeshiva basically. But they didn't want to do it without telling the Rebbe. So they told the Rebbe, Rabbi David told the Rebbe, and the Rebbe said the following words. The Rebbe said, um, on the contrary, you should call him in and you should tell him that you'll pay for the music lessons. That's what the Rebbe said. You'll see Nachas from what he will contribute to the Hasidic world of Hasidic song, melody, Hasidic melody. Rabbi David called him in. He was sure that this is it. He's getting the axe, he's being thrown out. Rabbi David said, I hear that you go and take lessons. He said, Well, he didn't want to lie, he told the truth. He says, How do you pay for it? So he said, He has some loans. He's going to repay. So David says, the yeshiva is going to pay for it. He was shocked. I heard the story myself from him several months before he passed away. He was shocked. And then he heard what the Rebbe said about, about him. Now, does this mean the yeshiva should suddenly stop? You say the yeshiva, God forbid, and everyone start taking music lessons? No, but you see the, the Rebbe's attitude. You see a person has a passion, has a talent. You cultivate it. Obviously, that's not replacing yeshiva. That's not the say that a yeshiva. It's an exception but you have to look at each bachar, and at each bachura, each girl, and see what they are, where their heads are, where their minds are. Some are learning, great. Excite them even further. Make sure their learning is not just doing out of Kabbalah sale, but something that personally touches them. Give them more passion, more chayas, more, more islavas, more excitement in it. And for those that are maybe not so strong, try to find something that ignites them. Next question. And again, the details of working this out, needs, we need to put our heads together. No way a program like this, my life, is going to solve all the problems and I have a whole game plan. We're planting seeds here. We're discussing food for thought. Hopefully educators are listening to this. Parents are listening. Students are listening. And all together we can come away and come away with a plan that works in this story that the Rebbe made. There's many ways to be innovative and creative. No question about it. Especially once you see a kid is not learning anyway or is not coming. So what's the solution? Just to force him in a strange act? He's not doing it anyway. So you say, no, you can't do it. No music, nothing, no hobby, no nothing. Better do nothing. That's better. We ignore it. That's not better. No. So you have to know case by case in each situation what we have to do. Okay. Next questioner in this topic. Why teens should understand their own brains and where that, why their teachers should too? So someone sent us a link. I can only send you the link. I can't read the link. It's too long. But it's an excellent link relevant to the discussion of teenagers in this week's Chassidus Supplied. It's basically how teenager brains work. So if anybody wants this link, just send me an email. It could be in an anonymous form, but just I need to have your email address to be able to send it to you. Meaningfullive.com slash my life. But add your email address and we'll send you the link. And And we'll read two more pieces, two more comments on this topic, and then we'll go to another topic. Okay. Teens and Internet. Hi, I'm a bit shocked that you read and seemingly agreed to the comment in the COL Live article stating that Internet is inevitable and therefore filters are not the sol- solution. Although I do agree there's just one part, be it a big part of the solution, I want you to imagine the same statement and just swap the word Internet for heroin or uh, not sure what some other type of thing. Since you can get, since your kids can get heroin down the block or Oxy at the pharmacy, let them have it in our house an extra 
does dose or two in their pockets. So in case they are having a bad day, they can shoot up in our bathroom. This idea is insane. Of course, it's just like drugs, you need to fill the void, void with other things, but why put it in his pocket? I'm sorry to say that. You type that impression from what I said here is absolutely ridiculous. I never said anything like this. I said, obviously, if you can control it, not even filters, if you can make sure that child doesn't have a, a smartphone altogether, internet altogether, let alone, that's not even with filters, altogether not have it. Filters can serve a purpose under certain circumstances. Unfortunately, the people we have the most problems with are not going to ask you whether they should put a filter on, like adults. Children, if you can control, great. But to make them start worshipping filters as if that's a solution is ridiculous as well. So I think this suggests a multi-pronged approach. And who's suggesting giving people something and saying, use it in a moderate form like drug? That's ridiculous. Obviously, that's not what we would discuss. I'm not sure we even picked that up. So I'm just, I just read it because you wrote it and some people may have gotten that impression. Just want to completely, um, unequivocally reject any type of such suggestion. We're not talking about doing it in moderation because you're going to do it anyway. That's not what we're saying. We're saying using it for Gdusha and using it for holiness if you're going to do it. Not to do it in a negative way and, and just uh, minimize the negativity. We're talking about completely using it for what God created technology, which is Lai Barakosh Baruchu, El Chvedei. Created for Kvede, like the Rebbe Sikhs that I cited, and I've cited a number of times, to use it for Chsidis, for the spreading of Yiddishkeit, and so on. Another comment, teens running. Um, dear Rabbi Jay, I see it on CLive, there are over 200 comments. I therefore decided to comment through email. Okay. I spoke about Kesha Bracha, so this person's correcting. I said Kesha Bracha was three times a year, sometimes more. He says four times a year. Yes, I stand corrected. Rosh Hashanah, Sukkot, Pesach, Shavuos. There were some additional times when the Rebbe washed, as of course the year when the Rebbe had the heart attack, but then there wasn't Simchas Teda. He replaced it on Zeis Hanukkah, but thank you for that. Your motto has always been that you read all letters and as is, and you don't shy away from any topic. True to your word, that has always been the case. Kola covered for that. However, in tonight's episode, in the first topic, the Yeshiva Bachar's issues, you said that you read all the comments from the website on the article because you agree with all of them. Was that just a slip or are there are comments that you don't read because you don't agree with? Once again, thank you for your great weekly programs. Anash of Kronheitz. I did not say that. I said I went through all of them. Obviously, I could not, cannot read 200 comments on this program. So I read a select few that I thought were reflective of points I wanted to make that were relevant. There were some things there that were nonsense. But everybody has a right so that you could read it there. No, I, did, I personally went through them because I wanted to see what people's minds are and be able to redress and comment them. And I selected a few of them. No, I did not agree with all of them. That would also be quite, not, quite insane. No, no one agrees with everything. That doesn't mean they're not entitled to their opinion. I agreed with some of them. Some of them I, cha- I agreed partially. And I think that the key thing is to approach it in a theoretical way. And there are probably different approaches not probably, surely different approaches. Anyway, I just read a good selection of a bunch of them. The goal, of course, of all of this was to show how people are really, this is an important issue, and how the diverse views on it may be. And please keep them coming. I'll be happy to use this platform. This is the whole purpose of the platform, is to help people. And this is a real issue, dealing with our youth, dealing with the foundations of our future. These are the, this is our future. So it's important enough to address. There was another follow-up, which I want to do, and then I'm going to do a few new questions. Let's see how the time is. Okay. 
I dealt with how to, I addressed how to deal in, in episode 213, two weeks ago, how to deal with religious OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. So again, re, look at that episode. I'm not going to read and repeat what was said then, but look there and you will get some ideas relevant. You'll get, and here I'll follow up from there and the questions that people asked. Just looking here. Okay. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you for your inspiring weekly broadcast. I would like to comment on your response this week to the husband asking about his wife's religious OCD. As a person who has been involved in helping someone close to me suffering from religious OCD, I think you were were remiss in noting that sometimes medication is necessary and that a professional should be consulted. Together with that, cognitive behavioral therapy is the gold standard for for treating OCD. If not equally as helpful, it is sometimes even more powerful than medication. However, a person may need to take medication for a while to enable them to receive the messages they receive from a therapist or mashpia to control their thoughts, which lead to compulsions. It sounds like you oversimplify the message a person with OCD needs to hear. There's a point where talking sense into the person is not possible. I am speaking from experience and I've seen firsthand the tremendous difference in quality of life for a person suffering from OCD when some medication was added to the treatment plan. Prior to starting, the person was just not in position to hear what work needed needed to be done. Medication took over the edge so the person could move forward. The religious OCD was so strong, making the person want to run away from religion to get some relief. Medication helped helped save the person's sanity. And Yiddishkeit, I find that when mental health issues are addressed, as as in the wonderful awareness event in Crown Heights last week, the topics that get attention are sexual abuse, addiction, and eating disorders. I think that OCD also needs to be addressed as people suffering from it and those in their immediate environment suffer very much too. Thank you once again for bringing to light very many important, many, very many important topics. Another person wrote something similar. Issues that developed after childbirth might very well be a postpartum psychological issue manifesting through Jewish observances. Perhaps they should speak to a doctor or therapist. I am neither of the above. Okay. So my response is, I take, um, I take what you say um, in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the right spirit, and I agree. But as I've always said, it's impossible to cover everything thoroughly from every possible angle. I can't tell you how many times I always qualify what I say by saying, you need to speak to a professional, there may be need for medication, there may be need for therapy, including dialectic therapy that you refer to, I believe... Cognitive behavioral therapy, rather. Yes, and, and absolutely going to professionals to help because it, sense does not always matter. I believe I may have mentioned, if I didn't, I stand corrected, and this should have been mentioned. In addition to that, I was just speaking to one point because my sense from the letter that I received that I read two weeks ago was the issue of realizing that OCD about religion is all about you and not about God. Is that enough to resolve the issue? Most likely not, but it's an additional component. So everything you've said I agree with, and I have no need to uh, elaborate on that, and thank you for pa- pointing it out. Absolutely, it should be addressed in every possible way, with a professional, with medication if necessary, whatever it takes. I also want to point out that I referred refer to letter that, letters that I've seen from the Rebbe on the topic that reflected that I tried to capture and, and, and reflect what the Rebbe said in the same context. One more person wrote about this and said, Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I wrote to you last week about my wife having religious OCD. 
Thank you for your answer. And if you don't mind, I would like to ask you a follow-up question. This is the actual person who wrote. My wife does know that she has this issue. And as I mentioned, she has been to, so many, to, to, she has been to many therapists who specialize in OCD and Rabonim as well as being prescribed medication. Okay, so good. However, none of it has helped at all. In fact, it has gotten steadily worse. Therefore, my question really is, assuming that she will not get better, at least for a while, and therefore there will be no intimacy in our marriage, she does not even go to the mikveh anymore, would you advise staying in such a marriage, or should we get divorced? Again, she is otherwise a good wife and mother to our children, but it seems that maybe for years, maybe years or forever, that we will not have any intimacy at all. If you think it would be helpful to go into this in public, that's fine, but I'm not sure if there's anyone else dealing with this specific issue, so if you'd rather email or call me, I would appreciate it. Okay. Well, this is a very sensitive topic, but I will say I've seen letters from the Rebbe, especially one that I'm keeping in mind right now, which I will read. I don't have with me here. It touches up, not this topic, but touches upon mental issues and whether staying in a marriage for a woman to stay with her husband having mental issues, emotional mental issues, um, emotional issues. And the Rebbe is basically making the point that you don't know what will happen after divorce. There are children and things could be even worse. That doesn't mean that you should stay in a bad marriage. It means there are ways to work on things. So even though you're right saying that till now things have not worked, I cannot say to you that, that, you've left every, that, that you should get out of the marriage. If your wife is a good person and she's a good mother, I think you have to find ways to make it work. That would be my advice, not to get out of it. And you may need to speak to another person and another person, and perhaps things can be done. Your wife is also probably needs intimacy. And she also needs companionship. So it's a two-way, it's a, it's a, it's a, it takes two people here. And therefore, I think there are probably ways. It's hard for me to respond. I will try to respond to you privately in more detail to hear more details. But to me in general, and I specifically wanted to read it in public because others may have similar issues, there are always ways. They may not be exactly easy. They may be more difficult. But divorce is not an option. Even though the Tate allows it for an option, but in this case, I would not consider it an option unless there was other, other mitigating circumstances which I'm not going to discuss right now but in generally speaking things can work and we have to find a way including intimacy I'm not suggesting you have to be doomed not having a personal intimate life but I would suggest that perhaps if we speak we can look, explore maybe more options and figure out something and maybe your wife for all you know with a new, new advice something innovative Things can be shaken up, things can be moved and be better than they and be improved and what they are right now. That's my general response. So that's as far as the follow-up goes. Now let's go with two new questions. It's actually three new questions, but one I'll refer to previous episodes. One is how can someone consider himself a chassid and not be careful with halacha? And this was written in Hebrew, actually, someone considering a chassidim gdalim, a great chassid. And he actually is proud and he boasts about how about how great a chassid is. And it actually feels insulted when you challenge him to, to show how, with what are you a chassid. And when it comes to halacha, even a simple halacha, they're not careful. This, this especially is expressed in matters of tznias and insulting others and simply not being careful. Many sifim brudim, clear Clear uh, the legal, uh, clear halachas in Shulchan Aruch. And he's saying this is not just an issue, an isolated issue with a few. 
This is something that seems to be progressing and growing. Now, I would believe that I've spoken about this topic many, many times. I actually tried to look at previous episodes because this is such a foundational element. So I've spoken about it so many times, I don't even know if I can refer you to some episodes. But the question at hand is this. That the question is very simple. Like novel The idea that a person can consider themselves a teledika person. And here case a chsidisha person. And defy what Tata says when it comes to menschlichkeit is, is total absurd. It's the Gamva Pumachtat Rahmanakarya syndrome. He prays to God, the Ganif, the thief prays to God, to, please help me succeed in my thief stealing. When in the in the which we just read Shavuos, God says, Le Signev, do not steal. So Khsid says, How could there be something so insane? The dissonance. And the answer is because Amuna is makif. And Amuna makif means it's not internalized. The problem is that number of people feel that they can compartmentalize. They think that they can be gvaldi between, between them and God, and with other people, they can mistreat them. It's a total distortion. It's called Do not do others that you dislike. That's the whole Tater, Hillel says. Everything else is commentary. Al-Tarev explains it in chapter 32 in time. But we have dissonance. I'm not going to say that a person who does a hidden a certain mitzvah is not doing that. They're doing it. But they're missing the whole boat sometimes. The whole point. Relationship with God. Relationship with God's people. God, you love people that the one you love loves. As brought in Hayyem Yem and many different sikhs. So, so this is a major magefa, major epidemic in this world in Elam Hazah that we could have such tremendous dissonance, radical dissonance. But especially in our times, we could have people who really think they're Chassidish people, and they're just not careful in the, in, in the basics of Yiddishkeit. Whether it's halachas, ben adon l'mokim, or ben adon People choose and pick whatever they like. So this, I would say, is, goes in the category of novel versus teda, someone who's despicable with the permission of teda. They find in teda justification for them being, behaving like, a, like, a, like despicably. The teda doesn't have to tell a person, be a mensch. That's a given. The whole Tater is meant that you should be a mensch. That's a given. The Tater Mitzvah says to sanctify beyond that. But people can have that disconnect. We're looking to be healthy people, not just religious people. Religious, healthy, functional people that behave in a healthy way to each other. So I'm not going to condone in any way, say that a person a chassid is a chassid. Maybe not a chassid. Maybe he's just a faker. I will even say he may be in certain areas. I'm not going to take that away from somebody because it's case by case. But there are some people who, who says they're chassid because they think they're chassid, because they claim they're chassid. It comes down to behavior between yourself and other people above all, yourself and so on. And with God as well. But people choose and pick in a very odd way what they think is the most important mitzvahs. There's a lot more to say about this, but I want just to make it very loud and clear just because somebody calls themselves or looks like or dresses chassidish or from, and so on, and then they behave the opposite, that doesn't make them chassidish, they just may be masquerading. And may not even know themselves, because their dissonance is so deep. They think that, that this is fine. And then they see others, and they say, everyone does this. Everyone is a hypocrite. So the standard that Tate expects from us is yes, to, to be consistent. And a person who is considered that God-fearing, considers themselves as a God-fearing person, it should be consistent in their behavior, and how they talk to people, and that's the mental kite but also in the, in the following halachas. You can't be a chosid without halacha. 
That's the bottom line. Chos is lefnimeshu sadin. That means din plus lefnimeshu sadin. Not instead of din. Someone will say, I only do lefnimeshu sadin. I don't do din. That's ridiculous. First you do everything that's required. And then you go beyond what's required. Like the, line, 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 the expression in the Sikhs that says, Achos is dos was tarnished, tarnished. And dos was memeg, daf menechnished. That which is not allowed is definitely not allowed. That which is allowed, that which you also don't have to do. That's the Fnimishur Sadi. Okay. Another question came in was the question of is life in our hands or Hashem's hands? This was uh, life is something someone like. Like if someone is committing suicide by mistake or purposely considered or purposely let me start again. This written, was not written clearly. If someone is committing suicide, God forbid, by mistake or purposely, is that person considered Yiddish Shemaim, which is in man's hand, or is it all in Hashem's hands? Okay. Like I'm worried about the suicidal rate and from community from overdosing, etc. Wondering if we need to freak out and be so worried and do everything to prevent it or let the teenagers and young adults be their way, since anyways, it's all in Hashem's hands. And if Hashem wants them all to live, they will, and, if it's, no, and it's no use being worried, or can us, can us re, can we really try really helping to prevent it, and does Hashem want that? Will they even listen? I feel like it's hard for them to help themselves, and they don't want others to help them. So are we working and worrying in vain, since Hashem is taking care of it all anyways? It's really a sticky and tough situation. What's your take? Thank you. Mashiach now. Not so clearly, but the question is quite clear. Part of uh, doing, the, yeah, Yir Shemaim means fear of God. That includes how you do with your life, how you live your life, and God forbid, even if you do something that's destructive or damaging to your life, even suicide. No, God does not control that. That's exactly what a person has. That's why when we see people who are, God forbid, being self-destructive, we have to do everything possible to help them. And we've seen recently people who actually reached the brink and then put themselves together and are unbelievable shining examples. So no, this is not a question of not being passive and saying whatever happens, happens. That's not correct. Things that are up to God are up to God. That's not in our control. But things that, you, that are based on human mistakes or human efforts. God forbid God decides that a person dies at a certain age due to an accident, completely not dependent on them. That's in God's hands. But things that are directly resulting from human actions whether it's parents' actions, whether it's educators' actions, whether it's the, the people themselves' actions, of course we're responsible and we have to do everything possible to help a person regain their self-respect and their dignity to not want to, God forbid, even consider harming themselves. So the answer is very clear in black and white. It's completely in our hands. That which is in Hashem's hands, again, is completely that which is in Hashem's hands, not things that are man-made actions. God forbid someone does something, they are responsible. Sometimes they're not responsible because they may have been so hurt. But there's responsibility around it. That's why we have dinim like Egla Rufa, where a community is responsible for someone that was hurt or killed in their community one way, in any way possible. We have to do something about it. So that's my answer. Brief and short. Another final question before we go to the Chassidus question. Are special children deprived? This is a topic where I have addressed a number of times, but since it came up again, let me tell you just, I'm not going to read again my responses. You can go back to episodes 45, 46, 100, and 158, where I actually read a beautiful, a powerful letter from the Rebbe on the topic, a number of letters, and that's what you should turn to. 
Let's go to the Chassidus question, then the essays, the, the three essays that we address every week. Chassidus question is, since we're coming from the Omer counting, we just finished counting before Shavuos. So someone asks about the Omer counting, why don't we count from Malchus to Chesed? Why do we go from Chesed to Malchus? In counting the Omer, we appear to be counting up to the giving of Tehidus. So the 50th gate and the giving, on Tehidus, and the giving of Tehidus on Shavuos. At the same time, with regard to the Sfiris, we are counting down from Chesed to Malchus. It seems like we should be counting up with the Sfiris as well, towards greater light. What is the explanation? Okay. So basically the answer question is like this. In the, in the, in the Chidush Aran, Ran on, on the end of Psachim, the Chinuch also, in the time of Mitzvah, Sanspiris Amos says, the prime, one of the reasons why they counted was a gaguyim, a yearning, counting down to Matan Teira. So then, the count according to that would be, okay, you're saying counting up to the giving of Teira. So they counted one, two, three, four, five, till they got to 49, and then Matan Teira was on the 50th day. But when we count, in the Masada Sfiris, we go down, top down, we go from Chesed, Shabbat Chesed, and then Malchus Malchus, Instead of why don't we count? Basically, we should be counting Malchus Malchus, Malchus, all the way to Chesed Chesed. So it's a very good question. I will point out a few different answers. And the first thing we'll let's begin with a Sikh in Tovshin Aleph, the Friedrich Aleph, and it's printed in Sefer Asikh's Tovshin Aleph, page one sixteen, and also in Sefer Maimorim Tovshin Yud, page twelve twelve. So the, there he brings and says that Lagba Emer is Teferis. And what does it mean Teferis? Because Teferis, Mamaila Lamata, when we count from Chesed Shebechesed, it's Hoyt Shebehoyt, we know, Lagba Emer. So how do we say it's Teferis? Mamata Lamaila, not Mamaila Lamata. If you count starting from Malchus Shebechesed, Teferis, the 33rd day will be Teferis Shebe Teferis. And the Rebbe cites in the footnote there, to look in Sidra Arizal from Rapshapsi Mirashkov and in Priyat's Chaim Shashvi Rasayim at the beginning of chapter 5, where he says specifically that on the first night, Yishkavona should be Chesed Shabbat Chesed. And the first week, we finish the week of Chesed. And to Chavin, but every week you should have a second Kavana to repair the Makif, one Makif of the seven Makifim of the emotions. But that Makifim, we go We start from Malchus. The first week, we, we finish Makif of Malchus. The second week, the Makif of Yesod. So we see here, there's actually two types of counts. There's a count that we count from t- top down. We go Chesed. But then there's a count that we do from the bottom up. But we don't count, we don't say Chesed. But there's a second, secondary Kavana. What is the meaning of this order? So in a Sikha of the Rebbe, Tov Yud, the first year, after the Stalkus of Yitzvat, in the Sikh of Lagba Emir Tavshin Yud, the Rebbe says the following. He explains it briefly in this context with, with the Ferris and Haid of. Uh, he says like this Since Sviyasek Emir comes after Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim was the Aved of Tzadikim. Tishrei is Tavshin, we go the Aved of Tshuva. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is the Aved of Tzadikim, Momaila Lamato. El Tishrei is the Aved of Bali Tshuva. So that's why the counting is consistent with that, like he explains in the Kabbalah Dikasforim I just said from the Arizal. Because you're counting from the top down, following the spirit of Mitzrayim. So a tzaddik begins from the highest level, Chesed, and goes, works his way down to Malchus. 
But there's a kavana gnuza. There's a hidden kavana hidden in that. Because the kavana of the shouldn't be just we have power from above. The kavana is that should be a birud, a refinement from the bottom up. That in our Aveda we should refine ourselves. And that's why you have in a revealed way a bepirsum, what you announce, what you say out loud in the counting of the Emir, to say there's mamayl lamata, you go from chesed to chesed, from malchus to malchus. But in that is hidden and it is makif. In a surrounding way, the intention of that. And what's the intention is that it should actually initiate that you should work from the bottom up. The malchus of the malchus. That's a seder that shayach by makifim. Because in giluyim, in an orderly way, you go from the top, you work your way down. But in makifim, which is a work from the bottom up, there it's more in a concealed way. We don't actually say it when we say the, the svira, but we think about it in a more hidden way, which is the meaning of what it says in the in the, in the Kisvei The Rebbe says, this is also Shachs to Teferis and Hoid, because both of them are beauty. Teferis means beauty, Hoid means beauty. But Teferis is Mamay Lamata beauty. Elian Nasik Kassilatacht, and Teferis of a higher level becomes the Kessel for a lower level. But then when a person, when the Rebbe says, when the higher level con- contemplates on the beauty that will be through the lower level, that causes it to want to go down to the lower level, even though it's not related to it. So it's Tefet is going down. And where does it go down to? Hoid. Hoid is the bottom from the bottom up. Because uh, the, from the Matl, from Lamato, we, Lamato, we go from Tefet, we go down to Hoid, but Mamata Lamaila. Let me just make sure. Mamata Lamaila, right. We start from Malchus, and that's where we go. And that's when it's Teferis Shabbat Teferis. That's what the Rebbe says. Teferis, rather. Teferis Shabbat Teferis. This is all from the Sikh from Tav Shin Yud. Okay. Now, let us go. One more thing I want to bring regarding this. In Tav Shin Mem Zayin, the Lag Ba'im Sikha, by the parade, I believe, the Rebbe spoke about this as well. And the Rebbe says in the Sikha, in the Sikha, in Sefer HaSikha's Tav Shin Mem Zayin, volume Volume 2, page 391, and footnote 53. So the Rebbe says like this, about Lag Beimer. So he says, that the Veda Lag Beimer is a chonet to Matan Tera. Prepares for Matan Tera. He says, and that, with that we'll understand why we, we count, we count going bottom up from 1 to 450. You could look it up because it's all about the yearning toward Matan Teira. We're counting the days that we work. We did work day one, we work day two, we work day three as we prepare for Matan Teira. Because the teichen of, of a Sefer Seimet is the Avedim Amata Lamayla. So that explains why we count from 1 to 49. But we go from Chesed Shebe Chesed to Malchus of Malchus. Because you could say Chesed Shebe Chesed, we're going from the top down. 49 is the top the highest level. But no, 49 is the lowest level because it's the last level of Aveda as we go from the top down. And that's where he explains there why we count that way because we're counting toward the zikr, the bitter, the refinement that comes from the bottom up that goes from 1 to 49 and um, every day one more Aveda. But we still have the Mamay Lamata power that comes from Pesach as I just explained. Okay. Let us do the three essays. The three essays go like this. What if you cannot do a mitzvah? Naomi Zirkind, age 57, Baltimore, Maryland. 
working in the U.S. Department of Defense, electronics engineer. And she writes the following, I know that every mitzvah I do is very precious to God and connects me to Him. So I'm very disturbed, dejected, discouraged, disappointed, and stressed that there is one particular mitzvah that I cannot do, even though I want very much to do so. How should I approach this situation? And what should be my attitude about this situation? And goes on to explain how we deal with this challenge of doing a mitzvah and uh, uses the Yisaitis of Chassidus, B'nai Slavchad, and in general, Simchis Soltera, I'm saying Simchis Teira, joy for women, difficulty finding a Shidduch, being in jail or other limiting situations, and how Teira helps us get through every challenge and gives a list of different options, of different, uh, I would say, methodologies. Realize that the purpose of this obstacle is to somehow lead to the performance of more mitzvahs. Ask a rabbinic authority what you can do in your situation, obtain an action plan, be happy about the opportunity to serve God, even if it's in a way you didn't expect. Make your best effort to serve God. Realize that God rewards you for refraining from doing something. Be happy knowing that your joy in serving God, however you can, will bring even more opportunities to serve God with joy. Very fine essay that can be seen at MeaningfulLife.com um, slash My Life. You can find this essay and, many, and all the others as we post them, as well as subscribing to our a mailing list, and we send out the new essays posted each week. The next essay is That's How It Is, Absolutely Not, How Torah Teaches Us to Think Out of the Box. It's a Hebrew essay by Hillel Raskin, and it is titled, by Hillel Raskin, age 22, Germany. Yeshiva G'dayla Buenos Aires. It's an excellent essay about how, we, how the negative, negative influences of secular education, but nevertheless, how it can help us get... Understand, like what it says in Zayar, that in the year Tafrej, that'd be the revolution of Chach Milamayla and Chach Milamata, and helps us understand how to think out of the box and not become caught up in the status quo. Very good essay in, in broadening our way of thinking based on Teir and Chassidus. And finally, the third essay is Chassidus and Technology, also in Hebrew, by Shiloh Yecheskel Betzal, age 20, Rechavot, in Israel, Shivagdele Kiryat Gat. And this essay is really a parallel of understanding technology and chassidus. Very well done as well. Ruchni Shebegasmis, and how chassidus in the world, and how different t- parallels of technology and chassidus, how, how they each help understand each other. Another great essay. So with that, we conclude this week's episode of My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 214. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. And everyone have a very blessed week. And we will be here next Sunday, 8 to 9. Thank you very much, and be well.